You're listening to the 21st Century Guide to the New Testament series taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. What I want to do just to start off tonight, because I mentioned last week, and I mentioned most weeks, that the goal of this series is that we can learn to be biblical and to practice good hermeneutics, to interpret scripture the way we ought to interpret it okay and and we understand this we know that there are thousands and millions of people out there that they take the word of god and they twist it to suit whatever they want it to say and and they pick out certain verses and certain parts and they emphasize those things and and they make them say things that within the context it doesn't say those things and and i know that we know that that exists but i think we got to be very cautious that it doesn't creep into our lives as well because it, it's a natural tendency and the truth is anything good in this world satan twists and so he is going to try and use the word of god in our life and twist it so that it's the application is wrong so that the truths that we're getting from it aren't what the bible is actually saying satan tried this very tactic against jesus remember that with the temptations he used the word of god and, and Jesus put him in his place, and he said, that's not what that's saying. So I, it's very important for us to do this. And so that's the goal of our series, to really get an understanding of these books and what they're about and where they're from. But I say all that tonight because I wanted to read something that is from an independent Baptist church, from a man who is very influential in the independent Baptist movement in Canada, and it was very disturbing to read. Uh, we're starting to realize that there are some churches that actually think poorly of our church, which is unfortunate. And I don't, I don't really know why they would. Uh, I think that we, we believe as strongly as anybody else in the core doctrines of the gospel, in the truth of the word of God. And so we're trying to preach that as well as we can at our church. And we're trying to encourage you to follow the Bible as well as we can. And yet there's still people that, that they don't like us. And so I read this and it was disturbing and I wanted to share it with you because this is what can happen to good churches and good people. This is kind of the tendency that we can have to, to go. And when you read it, it might not immediately strike you as shockingly bad, but think about the implications of what he says here. He says, there is a compromising trend among, among fundamental Baptist churches toward the contemporary movement. And just so you know, he would include our church in this group, Okay. And the word contemporary, it means living or occurring at this time. It's not a necessarily negative word, right? There are some contemporary things that are good and some that are bad. They just are happening at this time. But the contemporary movement, while many of of the methods and terminology used by the contemporary churches are on the surface not unbiblical, neither are they biblical. So what he's saying there, there is that these churches, they're not doing anything that's unbiblical. They're not doing anything that's wrong. Uh, they're just not clearly laid out in Scripture as what you should do. But I mean, what I guess the point that I would try and say is not everything, like the Bible gives us great principles and it gives us a, a foundation, but in every single church there are things and there are the order of service, how long the preaching lasts, what exactly what songs are sung, all of those things are not clearly in the Bible do exactly this because God didn't, I mean, God understood that there will be different generations of people. There will be different cultures that the church is in. It reaches all over the whole world. And so we can't pigeonhole it to just a certain exact, this is what service looks like. And so he is saying that they're not unbiblical. They're just not what he would like to see. He says, some believe that 
the rationale that since some of their methods are not unbiblical, they can be incorporated into our services. That doesn't not make sense to me. If something is not unbiblical, then there's no reason that we can't do it, right? I mean, if the Bible doesn't say we shouldn't do it, if it's not sinful, if it's not wrong, if, why would we be scared of that then? There's also a trend to soften our teaching to compete with the contemporary church movement. Some fundamental pastors, and, and I would say that is wrong. Okay, we don't soften our teaching. We don't back off what the Word of God says. It's just depending on what, what you consider softening. So this is what he considers softening. Some fundamental pastors are giving liberty where liberty isn't biblical. Well, you shouldn't give liberty where liberty isn't biblical, but he just said that you shouldn't have liberty in areas that weren't unscriptural, right? And so what, how he's defining liberty is very different than I think the Bible would define liberty. You do have liberty to do things as long as the Bible doesn't clearly tell you not to. We believe that God expects us, expects us to teach clear biblical message and allow the Holy Spirit to work in hearts. Amen. Our message should not be determined by trying to keep people who believe differently than we do. And I agree, we don't change the gospel, we don't change the truth of God, God's word, but at the same time, I think in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 11, Paul makes it pretty clear that, that he was willing to remove barriers from the gospel as long as it didn't deny the law of Christ. As long as he could be holy and, and righteous while he did those things, then he wouldn't put up unnecessary barriers to the gospel. So when he says that our message and our method should not be determined by trying to keep people who believe differently than we do, so yeah, we don't, we don't change what the Bible says to keep people, but it doesn't mean we do things on purpose to drive them away. He says, we believe that the direction of ministry is important. Our ministry is determined to set a direction where we cannot be accused of drifting toward the contemporary movement by adopting methods or tactics they promote or use. To do so would confuse those who are looking to our ministry for leadership and direction. The issue is not whether these methods can be proven from Scripture. The issue is being the right example for others to follow. Did you catch what he said there? It doesn't matter if what we're telling you you should do is scriptural. This is what we've decided is a good example. Who gets to decide that? Why does he get to decide what is right for a church to do when he's clearly saying that what they're doing isn't unscriptural. What it's not about whether you can prove it in Scripture or not. It's about what I've determined is a good example. This is very problematic because if we heard somebody make a statement like that from any other denomination, from any other cult, and they said something like, it doesn't matter whether Scripture says it or not, it matters what we determine to be a good example, we would be terrified of that statement, Right? Because it does matter what Scripture says. And it does matter what you can prove from Scripture. It does matter what the pattern of Scripture is. And we can't tell people that, they, that this is what the laws of the Bible are, but this is what we determine to be a good example. And so you need to, to follow our higher standard. Okay, we're not supposed to be more righteous than Christ or think that we're, we're going to be holier than Christ. It is what the Pharisees did. It is exactly what the Pharisees did. They, they, they had the law of God and they... They added laws on top of laws on top of laws until they were keeping these laws and they'd forgotten the, the commandments of God. So it's very problematic. He concludes that the issue is, sorry, we believe that using methods directly developed by contemporary movement is not the right example for others. And so 
All I would say is it is important for us as a church body to be scriptural. And as, as church leadership, we do not set ourselves above you. We're not your authority. Okay, the best thing that we can do for our church is to teach you what the Word of God says and then have you apply it to your lives. And so what that does is it takes some of the burden off us because we don't have to lord, lord over you. We don't have to act like what we say is the, the Word of God. We can say, you need to go into Scripture and see if what we're saying is true. Because remember what in Acts 17:11 what Paul said? Paul said that these, speaking about the Bereans, were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word of God with the readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. And so they heard the teaching of Paul, they received the teaching of Paul, and then they checked it out with Scripture. That is what we want you to do. Because not only does that remove all of the burden from us, what it also does is it places some of the burden on you to say, listen, it is your job to get into the Bible. It's your job to search whether those things are so. And so we're not just the know-it-alls of everything, and we never say that our doctrine is perfect. Okay, we do the best we can to understand Scripture and to teach it to you. So I want to, to say that because the point of this entire series is to teach you to go home and practice good hermeneutics for yourself, to understand Scripture properly, and then to apply it to your lives. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the lesson this week. Father, we love you. We thank you for um, your word. We thank you that it's perfect. We thank you that we can trust it. Lord, I thank you that we have the Holy Spirit inside each one of us that speaks to our hearts, that convicts us, um, that um, knows each one of our hearts and knows what we need to hear and knows what areas we need to be convicted in. And God, I pray that as we listen to your word tonight, as we look at the book of 1 Thessalonians, that you'd help us to um, understand its context, uh, to understand what Paul meant when he wrote to the Thessalonian church, and then to rightly apply the scripture to our lives. I pray that we would leave here, uh, we would begin here searching for something from you, and we leave here having found it and allowing the Holy Spirit to change our lives because of it. We love you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The author of the book of 1 Thessalonians is the Apostle Paul, but he wrote not just by himself. In, Paul, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Verse 1, it says, Paul and Silvanus, which is Silas, it's a long version of that name. So Paul and Silas and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul begins the book clearly saying that he is the author. This time he doesn't actually introduce himself as as a servant or as an apostle or any of those things. He just says who he's writing with. Now as we go through this book, as we understand the background of the book, I think it will make sense why he chose to, to include Silas and Timotheus in his authorship. But I do think is, it is kind of cool that Paul does this often. Paul is not a guy who's going out to take all the credit. Because the truth is, as you read the book, there are some, some personal pronouns. And so there are some times that it's very clearly just Paul writing this letter. But he includes these guys because they're probably in the room with him. Now, both of these guys understand that Paul is the apostle. Both of them have been saved under his ministry and are learning under his ministry. And yet he chooses to be humble and to include them. That is just who Paul is. Okay, we should see Paul as a wonderful man of God, but as a sinner saved by grace. And, and just a man who, who pursued the gospel in his life to the point where he was doing what he was doing. It wasn't because he had something special in himself. It's because he took the truths that we know, 
and applied them to the fullest extent. And that's Paul. And so Paul is very humble in that introduction. The date it was written is AD 51 to 52 from Corinth. And this was during his second missionary journey. And the audience there was the church of Thessalonica. So Thessalonica is located in the province of Macedonia. It is the largest city in Macedonia. About 200,000 people live there. And it was the capital of Macedonia. So a very important city. Um, I think it was, it was along the, the Ignatian Way, which is a very important highway uh, back then. And so it, a very big city. And as a big city, it dealt with many of the same problems we found when we studied the church of Philippi and the church of Corinth. Okay? In most big cities, you have more opportunity for persecution, more people that won't, that won't like you and that will eventually turn against you. And you have a lot of different sinful activities to be a part of. And so this church dealt with a lot of those same things. Uh, just to give you an idea of how the church came to be, um, Paul, in his second missionary journey, went to Macedonia. Remember the Macedonian vision? So he goes to Philippi first, and then he moves on to Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, the Bible says that he's there in Acts chapter 17 for three Sabbath days teaching in the synagogue. And after three Sabbath days, it doesn't say that he left immediately, but sometime after that. So he's there at least three weeks, possibly longer. We don't know exactly how long. But after that time, they knocked on Jason's door. Jason is a Christian who was housing Paul while he was on his journey, Paul and his companions. And so they knock on Jason's door. They're looking for Paul. They don't find Paul, but they, so instead they, they pull Jason before the city council and there they make kind of an agreement that they'll stop, they won't kill Paul and they'll stop persecuting if Paul immediately leaves. And so Paul and Silas get up and immediately they have to leave that night. They go to Berea. So Paul is not there for a super long time. He doesn't have a really long time to instruct the church, to teach them doctrine, but certainly there was enough time to, to have a gathering of believers in Thessalonica. We know that because he wrote these letters. So Paul leaves from Thessalonica. He goes to Berea. He goes from Berea to Athens. When he's in Athens, he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica and he tells Timothy to, to bring a report to him. So after Paul is in Athens, he preaches on Mars Hill, doesn't go very well, and so he leaves, he goes to Corinth. And in Corinth, that's where it seems like he's in a very difficult time. If you read uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians, if you read um, the book of Philippians, it seems like while he was in Corinth, he was going through a rough time. Well, at that time, Timothy shows up with a report from the church of Thessalonica that everything was going very, very, very well. And so Paul is encouraged because this church that he only planted for a short time, now six months later, he gets a report that the church is doing well, that it's growing. It's wonderful news. And so Paul writes this letter, 1 Thessalonians, probably within a year of planting the church, maybe a couple of years after he planted the church, just to encourage the church to give them some doctrine and to give them some pastoral leadership on what they should do. It seems like the church had some questions about the second coming, and so Paul addresses that quite often in the letter. But the, the book of 1 Thessalonians is not the most doctrinal book in the Bible. It, it really does seem like he's dealing with more pastoral concerns. Uh, certainly gets into theology with the second coming stuff, but he's, he's more pastoral and less theological in this book. The purpose of the book. Okay, this is important as we read a book, we know why he wrote it. And so the purpose is to encourage believers to walk in hope, 
and holiness in the midst of persecution and temptation. I hope as we read that purpose, we realize how significant then what he wrote is to us. Because we are supposed to walk in hope, right? We live our lives based on hope, based on the fact that someday we'll be with him for eternity. That is our blessed hope. That that is what's so wonderful about the Christian faith is that this is not the end, that you are marching, yes, to your death, but you're marching to eternal life. In fact, you already possess it. That is our hope. And so we're supposed to live our life based on that hope. That hope should change everything about us. If, if we're not just living this life for today and for tomorrow and for Friday, then everything about our life changes. We're living for eternity now. So our mind is on eternal things, on heavenly things, not just on this life. That hope changes us. And when, when the Bible talks about hope, I think a few minutes ago, at the, in the introduction, I said the word hope. When we think of hope nowadays, we think of something that, that is maybe probable, but something that we're just optimistic about. But when the Bible talks about our hope, it calls it our sure hope. It is something that we have not experienced yet, but it is certain as today is. It is absolutely certain that it will come to pass. It is not just a far-off, shot-in-the-dark kind of hope. This is going to happen. We just haven't walked through the whole thing yet. And so now our life is about that. It's about what we know will come to pass in the future. We live for that. We live for eternity. And so they're supposed to live for eternity. He talks so much about hope in this letter, about the hope of Christ's second coming, the hope of being with him forever, the hope of his reign. And then he, doesn't, he says, walk in hope, but walk in holiness. That hope changes things. So you now walk in holiness. If you are living your life just for this life, then it makes complete sense to participate in all of the sins that the world offers. I mean, be smart about it, right? Don't, don't get involved in like terrible drugs that are going to ruin your life tomorrow. But why not participate in some of the pleasures, the sinful pleasures, if, if this world is the end, right? But what Paul is trying to get them to understand is because they have that eternal hope, they don't live that way now. They live to please the one who gave them that hope. They're supposed to walk worthy of God, walk worthy of Christ, walk in light of the cross. And so when you do those things, then you walk in holiness. You don't walk in your temptations. You don't walk in your fleshly lusts and desires. You walk for your God. That is walking in holiness. And he says to do that in the midst of persecution and temptation. And what Paul is trying to say there, and what First Thessalonians makes clear, is that God didn't give you your salvation so that there would be no troubles for you in the future. Persecution happened in Thessalonica. In fact, Paul was almost, he was going to be killed in Thessalonica. He had to, to escape at night. They, they let him go, and he wasn't allowed to come back. So he knew all about this, the persecution going on in Thessalonica, it's very clear that the Thessalonians were being persecuted. He's not saying that that's just going to go away, you know, wait until tomorrow because God is going to take away that, that persecution. He's saying endure. Because you have that hope, now endure in this life. Stand in the face of temptation. Don't succumb to it. They, they had the same types of temptations back then that we do today. Do you know how I know that? Because humanity doesn't change. It's always been the same. 
you read the entire Bible and people are always doing the same sinful things. There's just different faces on them. And so we are called to the same thing. Walk in hope. Be holy. Don't worry about persecution. Face persecution and face it with hope. And then stand in the face of temptation. That's Paul's message to them. The outline of the book is in chapter 1 we find the greeting and thanksgiving. Paul says hi to the church and he tells the church how thankful he is for the church and how wonderful it was to receive that letter. In chapter 2, Paul gives a very great description of his ministry. And as I've been reading and going through these epistles, I think that chapter 2 provides for us the best example of what it is to live in Christian ministry, to participate in Christian ministry. If, if you want to know what the heart of a Christian minister, of a servant of God should be, then read chapter 2. In fact, why don't we read chapter 2? Can we do that? Okay, it is, it's such a fantastic chapter. It is the heart of Paul and how Paul acted toward this church. Chapter 2, verse 1. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before, we were shamefully entreated, as you know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. So he's saying, even though our past has been hard, even though there's been tribulations and trials behind us in Philippi, we left there and we came to you to preach the same gospel. And since we've come here, there has been great contention. Because that's what happens when you share the gospel. That's what happens when you live at your faith. Hard, hard things come across. And he's saying, we just keep going. That's, this is the heart of Paul. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. He says there, we're not telling you lies. We're not making up stories. We're not telling you deceit. We're telling you what God told us. We're sharing you the gospel of God. That is our goal because our goal is never to please men. It's to please God. He's the one we'll stand before in judgment. So that's how we live. Verse 5, For neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, or a cloak of covetousness. God is our witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. He said, we didn't, we didn't seek our own glory. We didn't come to you with these flattering words where you would think so high and lofty thoughts about us. Like, look at that guy. He is so wonderful and holy. And look at that prayer. It was just so incredible. We didn't do that. We came for, to you in truth, and we tried our best not to be a burden to you. It was all about God's glory, not ours. Verse 7, But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. Here's the picture of a nursing mother and the love that she would have for this baby. I mean, you love your kids, and I think your love for your children changes as you get older, but I think it grows, because I guess maybe there's more to love and there's different ways to love and all those things, but I'm not sure if there's a time when you feel just that, like, like this, it's my baby. It needs, for a mother, it needs you for everything. And he's saying, that's how I loved you. That, uh, as a nurse cherishes her child, that's how I loved you. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear to us. We wanted to give you the truth. We wanted to give you ourselves. 
We gave you everything we had. Verse 9, For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail for our laboring night and day. Because we would not be chargeable to any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. So he's working during the day, making tents, and then he's giving the gospel all night, or as long as he can. I mean, this is a guy who just worked and labored for the gospel's sake. And in this case, just so that they could very clearly say, see that it wasn't about money for them. Verse 10, You are witnesses in God also how holily and justly and unblamably we behaved ourselves among you that believed. We were an example. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that you should walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. And we'll stop there, but I mean, even the rest of the chapter goes on. Paul just had a wonderful heart. He loved these people. He loved truth. He loved the gospel. And he did everything he could in Thessalonica, despite the fact it would mean him pain and suffering to give them the truth of the gospel. That is the heart of a, of a good minister. And I'm telling you, that was the chapter. That, those were the verses this week as I was studying that convicted me more than anything else. And so, maybe it doesn't for you. Maybe it'll be something else. But I thought that was, those were some fantastic verses. And so, chapter 2, we have the description of Paul's ministry. We're back to the outline now. Chapter 3 is the description of the Thessalonian church. Here we see what the church is like. And it's, a, it's a, overall a very good picture of a church. Chapter 4 to chapter 5, verse 24, we have Christ coming and godly living. And, and in those two chapters, Paul talks about the second coming of Christ, but all around the talk of the second coming of Christ is talk about how you should live godly lives. It's an encouragement to live godly in your dark present world. And so the, the point of that is just that God gives truth, but he, he always gives truth that has a reason for it. Paul didn't just say like this for your knowledge so you can spend your entire life studying the second coming of Christ. He, he talked about the second coming so to remind you that we have that hope. And so it should, those truths around it should be the things changing our lives. And finally, in chapter 5, verse 25 to, to verse 28, is Paul's conclusion. Key verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Walk worthy of God. So what I want to do with our last few minutes here is just give you what I see as some of the distinctive marks of the Christian life. I have 10 distinctive marks of the Christian life, and what Paul often does in the book of 1 Thessalonians is he compares what it means to live like a Christian with the people that are living around them, with their current culture, with the light and the darkness. And so in these verses, we'll see what it means for these people to, to not only be saved, but then to live as believers in their culture. So the first distinctive mark of the Christian life, number one, put your faith in the true and living God. That, that's how it all starts. It starts with faith. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, it says, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering we had unto you, and how you turned to God, from idols to serve the living and the true God. Prior to knowing the true God, prior to you putting your faith in the, the true and living God, you served dumb idols. That is the, the very clear distinction. There isn't this middle ground. There isn't this, well, everybody finds their own way. It is, you're serving the true and living God or you're serving these dumb idols. And, and so it all begins with putting your faith in the true and living God.
Number two, you walk to please God. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 says, But as we are allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. Okay, walk to please God. Don't walk to please men. So you don't walk to please the world around you. You don't walk to please your coworkers. You don't walk to please the person sitting in the pew beside you. We don't walk to please one another. And this is the problem. This is how we're hypocritical. He's saying, don't, don't live to please p- people. Just live to please God all the time. You shouldn't be a different person when you're coming to church, right? You should be the same person all the time because you're living to please God, not men. Number three, walk worthy of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.11, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that you should walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. So you walk worthy of God. Why? Because you're part of his kingdom now. Because his, he's your king. Because before you served the dumb idols, before you could do whatever you wanted in this world, but now you have a new and far greater king. The king of the universe. You're in his kingdom, his reign. And so you walk worthy of that God. It would be so strange to us if we were like, okay, here's the king, and this is his character, and it is good and right and holy. If we're talking about a real life place, here's the king of this land, but then look at, why does he hire all of these servants? Why are all of his children so wicked and evil? It, It wouldn't make sense to us. Why don't they act like they're king? It's the same thing. We have a king who is perfect and righteous and holy and kind and loving and just and forgiving and gentle. So Christians should try and be like their God. Now, it doesn't happen when you get saved, just like that. It doesn't happen immediately, but it's a process we're all working toward. So he says, in everything you do, be walking worthy of your God. Keep that in your mind as you live your life. Number four, walk in the word. When, when I wrote that down, it, it, I couldn't, the, the little walk, walk in the word jingle just kept going through my head. But it's there, it's in the Bible, right? First Thessalonians 2.13 says, For this cause also we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. You heard the word of God, you accepted it as it is, the word of God. And, and now that word is working in you. So walk in the word. Be in the word. You can't walk in the word when you're not in it, right? Number five, walk in faith and love. First Thessalonians 3 verse 5 says, For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you. I was, I was afraid of where you'd be at. So I sent Timothy. I sent to know your faith, and our labor be in vain. But when Timotheus came from you unto us, and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity. See, the, the two things that Timothy brings back is they have great faith and they have great love. Well, I mean, what else do you need then, right? Without faith, is it possible to please God? You want to know how to keep the, the entire law? How you please God completely? You love God and you love others. And so when we can practice faith and love, we can walk in faith and love in our lives, <laughs> we've, got it, we've got it down pat, right? That's what we need. So he says, walk in faith and love. Number six, walk in moral purity. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 to 5 says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. 
that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence. And that's an interesting phrase. It's like the lust of lust or the lust of desire. Even as the Gentiles, which know not God. This is how they live. This is how you live. He says, you need to learn to possess your vessel in sanctification. You need to learn to set yourself apart. It's not something that you, you, you automatically know. In fact, everything in your flesh is going to take you the other direction. And so learn to walk in moral purity. There's a lot of people that they want to know the will of God for their life. And what they mean is, I want to know what I should do way down the road. I want to know what my future entails. The Bible says, this is the will of God. Walk in moral purity. I think we get it mixed up sometimes. We want to know what God wants from us in a couple of years, but we're not doing what God wants from us today. The way to be in God's will in a couple of years is to obey his will today. So walk in moral purity. First uh, Thessalonians 4.7 says, For God hath not called us to uncleanness, but to holiness. And there it's in reference to unclean, immoral lifestyle. So walk in holiness. Number seven, walk in hope. These are the great verses about the second coming. And really, if you look at the book of First Thessalonians, you'll see that at the end of every chapter, Paul references the second coming. And at the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five, he takes a lot of time to talk about the second coming of Christ. So here in First Thessalonians 4.13, it says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Remember the hope that's supposed to drive you? saying, listen, you live your life of this hope and know that this is what we have. See, the world, they don't have any hope. They live without any hope. You need to live with hope. And so I don't want you to be ignorant of this. I want you to understand how this is going to play out, how the resurrection plays out, how the second coming plays out. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which are asleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of an archangel, and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with that hope that someday we will be with the Lord forever. Take time out of your day to think about that for a while. Step back from your current reality, from what's going on, and just think about that hope. Forever with God? I mean, that's, that's amazing. What are you going to do in 10,000 years? Two billion years? I don't know, but you're going to be with the Lord. That's pretty cool, right? It kind of puts this life into perspective. Number eight, walk in light. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that, that the day should not overtake you as a thief. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Okay, walk in light. <laughs> do things that you should do in the light. Um, he's there talking about our moral lives. Walk in light. Number nine, walk in watchfulness and sobriety. Verse 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6 and 7 says, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. We'll stop there. 
Don't sleep. Don't slumber. Watch and be sober. Be, be vigilant. Be on guard. Pay attention. Don't just do whatever you feel like it. Continually examine yourself. Examine your life. Watch. Be sober. There's temptation all over the place. Uh, we, we must think clearly about our lives. Number 10, walk in thankfulness in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And this whole idea of walking in thankfulness it is an incredibly important idea and it is one that it is so different than the world around us very specifically. Uh, the world around North America where we have everything and we always want more, where we expect everything. Walk in thankfulness. It is so easy for us to become unthankful, to become the people that just expect. You know, do we, ex- do we expect Jesus to save us? Did we, just, did we just read that, that God became a man and died on the cross for our sins because we are so wicked that we could not stand before him, that we deserved hell? Does it, does it just like, oh, no biggie. No, that should amaze us every day. We should be so thankful that we have a God like the God we do. Don't take him for granted. Okay? Christians need to walk in thankfulness. And that's it. That, those are the ten that I pulled out. There's many more there. But the Christian life, it's meant to be different. Praise God for the blessed hope we have. Live in that hope and let that hope draw you to Christ and continually away from this world. Just keep getting closer to him, more like him. Let's pray.